Welcome to another episode of The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. It's great to have your company, and I hope that you're encouraged and challenged as you hear a bit of the life story of my guest, Chris Keith. I first met Chris about five years ago in her role as Speaker Coordinator for the Sunshine Coast region of CWCI, which stands for Christian Women Communicating International. Chris is an accomplished speaker herself and loves sharing her love of God's word with other women. She's one of those women who encourages you to be more diligent in reading God's word and praying to him because you can see the fruits of such diligence in her life. In our conversation that you're about to hear today, we see how God has answered her prayers at different points in her life. And we'll talk about how she became a Christian, the epic story of adopting her three children, and her involvement in uh, various parachurch ministries such as SU and CWCI. But to kick off our interview, I asked Chris what she did when she left school. I got a scholarship to uni and I got a teacher's college scholarship, so I was training to be a high school English teacher. But during the time I was at uni, I became a Christian. Tell me how you became a Christian. I'd love to hear the story. Well, at the end of first year uni, I wanted to do some horse riding. I lived in the city, but I had been horse riding at a camp previously, and I loved that, and I thought I'd like to do some more. So I inquired about commercial horse riding places, but they were far too dear. I couldn't afford them on my scholarship money and on what I'd earned over the Christmas holidays. And then I remembered that when I was in high school, in fourth year high school, which is the equivalent of year 11, two men had come from a new enterprise um, just out of Sydney at a place called Cobbity, called Teen Ranch, which was a Christian horse riding camp. So I thought, look, I'll ring them up and see if they've got anything going. I rang them up and the price was very good, about half the price of the commercial places. And they just happened to be running a camp for post-school people the following week. So I registered for that camp and I asked my sister to come with me. And I remember saying to her, I guess we can put up with the Christian bit so long as we get to do lots of horse riding. <laughs> well, God, of course, had other ideas and each day we had a chapel hour when they gave a gospel message. Now, I grew up in the era where everyone went to Sunday school. So I had heard the message of Jesus before, but it was like it was brand new. I was, it was actually like I was hearing it for the first time. And I remember it was hot, it was January. And I remember one night, the Tuesday night of camp, lying awake in bed, struggling, thinking about this message and not even being really sure if there was a God. And I struggled for many hours thinking, well, if he's there, then I really need to give my life to him. And I realised that if Jesus had died on the cross for all the wrong things I'd done, I'd never even bothered to say thank you. So I think it was probably about 2am in the morning when I called out to this God who I wasn't even sure if he were there, that if he were real, that he would come into my life and that he would forgive me and change me and make me his. And I had an overwhelming sense of peace and I think I fell asleep. 
And when I woke up the next morning, the whole world had changed. Everything was different. And I didn't realise it was me that was different. But when I listened to the talks in Chapel Hour that day, the Bible was suddenly very real. And I just had a little Bible, a little Sunday school Bible, which was the King James Version. It was about four-point type, I think. I'd never be able to read it these days. But I wanted to read God's Word. I wanted to find out about this Jesus and about God and about everything. I knew nothing. But I just knew that God had changed me and I was His. That's fantastic. I just love hearing stories about how God opens people's eyes and mm. uh, gives them a new life, really. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, exciting to hear about your enthusiasm for God's Word. And it sounds like that hasn't really ever dwindled that much. You've always loved God's Word. and Yes, I have. And when I got home, I started reading the Bible. And I remember my mother finding me reading the Bible one day saying, well, a little religion never hurt anyone, just don't go overboard. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did. <laughs> but what I used to do too is uh, I started going to church. Yep. Unfortunately, I, I knew nothing about church. I knew, didn't know that there was differences. There were differences between the churches. And I did Highland dancing at the time. And so I went to a church where a lot of my Scottish friends went and it turned out it was quite liberal but I didn't realise that at the time mm. and I remember telling the minister that I'd become a Christian and he wasn't at all enthusiastic about that he said well you must have been mixing with Baptists by the sound of it and I said he said oh you're not into all that washed in the blood of the lamb stuff and I said well isn't that in the bible and he just laughed at me. Oh, Eventually, it didn't deter me because I knew what God's word said. I knew God had made me his and that did not deter me. And so when my scholarship money came in every fortnight, I would go to Scripture Union Bookshop in Sydney and I'd buy a book. And it's amazing when I look back that the books I bought were just the right ones to help me grow at that particular time. And after a couple of years, I started going to an evangelical church, which was really helpful. I remember going into the Scripture Union bookshop and asking for a Bible. And I said, I wanted one with a concordance. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea even how you said the word, but I'd seen it, yeah. that this was where you could look up things and find out where things were in the Bible. And so I bought an RSV Bible with a concordance. <laughs> And that became my Bible for many years. Yeah. I've still got it. Uh, it's falling apart. But, uh, and I did some study too through um, IVF, which means something else these days. But in those days, it meant InterVarsity Fellowship, mm. AFES now. Yep. But, and I did some study on basic Christian facts and faith and things like that. And that was very helpful. Mm. And some of those books that you read in the really early days, do you still remember the titles? Like, were some of them, are they still your favourite books? Well, yes, yeah, some of them were things like By Searching by Isabel Kuhn. Yep. There was one on Love, which was on First Corinthians. I think I read The Cross and the Switchblade, yep. things that were around in the 1960s. Yeah. I became a Christian on the 25th of January 1966, so 50 years this year. 
So a lot of those things are still with me and I remember them. Some are still on my bookshelf even. There's a lot to be thankful for in the way that God leads his children, even when they're not getting fed yeah, at church. Absolutely. And then um, you got involved in Scripture Union Beach Missions, but they were called... CSSM, Children's yep. Special Service Missions. Okay. But we used to just call it Beach Mission most of the time. Yep. Yes. And that's where Terry, my husband, and I met. And was it love at first sight, Chris? No, well, it wasn't exactly. <laughs> I, I have a big smile. <laughs> just in case anyone thinks I'm serious with that question. <laughs> it wasn't exactly. Uh, I was so scintillating that uh, six years after we met, he actually asked me out. <laughs> we started going out in 1972 and uh, we became engaged at the end of 1972 and we were married in May in 1973. Mm -hmm. And then you worked as a teacher. Did you end up working as a teacher? Yes, I did. Um, I was training to be a high school teacher, but when I became a Christian, I started going back to Teen Ranch later on as a leader, and I found that I really related to younger children better than the teenagers. So I changed. And when I was doing my dip ed, um, there were about 450 people doing it, I suppose, and six people chose to do primary methods, and I was one of them. So I came out as a graduate primary teacher in the days when most people were only two-year trained. Yeah. So that was quite exceptional, Okay. but as I most... never regretted it. Right, so you were one of the rare ones that had a degree in primary teaching. Okay. Yes, uh-huh. yes. Yes, of well, course. you were just a trailblazer because that's the norm now. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, yes. Oh, there you go. And what brought you and Terry to Queensland? Well, after we were married, we both knew that we wanted to go to the country. My first posting as a teacher had been to Ningen in the far west of New South Wales, out near Bourke. And even though I'd never taught before, I'd never left home before, never been away from home before, I'd never lived in the country before, I found that I was a city person with a country heart okay. and I loved that yeah. and when I was posted back to Sydney because in those days you didn't get a choice you were bonded to the education department I thought Sydney who wants to live in Sydney Terry we found that he also wanted to go to the country he taught at Forbes previously and we got posted to Tumut in 1975 and while we were there, we were there for seven years. A lovely place, had had everything except spirituality. Right. And uh, Terry got asked to work for Scripture Union in Queensland. Mm-hmm. So in 1982, we moved to Brisbane. Okay. And we've been here ever since. Fantastic. And so what was Terry's job with Scripture Union? What did that involve for you? Well, mainly it was camps. Mm-hmm. Um, holiday camps and weekend camps and Terry calculated that in the eight years we worked for Scripture Union we did about 70 camps so my children thought that everybody went to camps all the time they didn't know I remember one of my children talking about a school camp that was coming up when she was in year five and she said mum there are kids in my class who have never been to a camp she couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I've been to 70. <laughs> oh, wow. Different perspective. Certainly was, yeah. yes. Now, one of the talks that you gave, Chris, you talked about being adopted and what a precious insight that gave you into God's relationship with you. 
Are you able to tell me a bit about that? Yes, well, I'm actually not adopted myself. Oh, it's your kids. I have three okay. adopted children. I am. I have been adopted into God's family. Yes. And when Terry and I were decided that we wanted to have children, which is about six months after we were married, and we tried and it didn't happen. And after a couple of years, we realised that we were had infertility problems and I said to my gynaecologist we're thinking of applying for adoption what do you think he said well in your case I think it'd be a good idea so we decided to apply for adoption it's interesting when you apply for adoption or, or with your family and friends because people are often skeptical about it they say things like you never know what you might be getting well, I didn't think there were actually any guarantees with your own <laughs> biological children. Um, and they sort of had strange ideas about it. But God, in his great love and provision, gave us three children by adoption. Each of them was an answer to prayer. I mean, I used to read through the story of Hannah with tears streaming down my face and ask God, to give me a child mm. and um, we applied for adoption and we were told in those days there weren't as many children they just brought in the single mother's pension mm -hmm. so a lot of girls were keeping their babies and we were told that the waiting period would be eight to ten years so we thought how can we wait that long and we prayed that God would give us a child and it's quite a process applying for adoption. You feel like your whole life has been exposed in triplicate mm. to the Department of Family Services. 16 months after we were told we had to wait quite a number of years, we were offered a child. And the backstory to that is that a baby girl was born to a Christian couple who weren't married, they'd made a mistake. They were both uni students. Mother tried to keep the baby for a little while, but she found she couldn't do that and continue her studies. So she decided to put her child up for adoption. But they wanted their baby to go to a family that would have been like theirs if they had been going to marry. So they made some stipulations and they said they wanted committed Christians <coughs> who were Anglicans and who had a similar educational background to them. And they were both training to be teachers. Snap. <laughs> Indeed, snap. Wow. So on the 1st of November 1977, I was on playground duty at school in Tumut, and Terry came across the playground waving a letter. They'd written to us because at that time, the phone exchange in Tumut was being changed from manual to automatic and they couldn't get through by phone so uh, they said there's a baby girl that we believe is for you so I just went to the principal straight away and said you better send someone out in the playground <laughs> I, I want to resign oh wow and she said what do you mean and I said well I want to leave school on Friday this was the Tuesday and I told her and she was really thrilled I said I'm a mother and then we traveled to Newcastle and picked up our baby girl, who we called Naomi, which means sweet and pleasant. It's very hard choosing names when you're both school teachers, actually. <laughs> There's a lot of names that you've already ruled out. 
and uh, because we were just so brimming with happiness yeah. we gave her the second name of joy and she's our first child then when Naomi was about 12 months old we decided we'd apply for a second child and they told us this time that there'd probably be a four to five year wait and I thought oh by that time Naomi it'll be at school I had this picture in my mind of two toddlers happily playing together <laughs> in the sand pit <laughs> and uh, I thought that's not the way I planned it, Lord. I just don't know. Anyway, we prayed. And the other thing was at that time, I was in a Bible study group in Tumut with four other lady friends and they were all pregnant. And I was really thrilled for them. I never, I never minded being with pregnant women because I knew how happy I'd be if it were me. Yeah. But I wished I were in the same condition. Yeah. And we went to a meeting at a nearby town and at the end of the meeting this man said if anyone wanted to pray about anything to come forward. Well I don't usually do that sort of thing but I said to Terry I think I'd like to go forward and pray about a child. So we went forward and as we prayed I had an overwhelming sensation that our prayer was answered. Now, that, I think that's probably the only time I've had such an absolute certainty. And we went down the mountain from Batlow back down to Tumut, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get pregnant. This is so exciting. Ten days later, four months after we were told we had to wait another four or five years, we were offered another child. And the backstory to that is that God answers prayer, of course, first, but um, we had put in in our papers that we were willing to accept a boy or a girl, a child who may have medical issues, or a child of another race. And they trolled through, and he was a baby girl who was part Aboriginal, part West Indian, and part Caucasian. And we were the next ones on the books who had said that they would take a child of a mixed race. That was 10 days after we prayed that prayer. And that baby is now 37. She's got a lot of challenges in life. And when I look back, I believe God gave me that certainty that she was meant to be in our family to help us with the challenges that we face day by day these days. Mm. Then, when we moved to Queensland, it would be nice to have another child and you can only adopt two babies. And we heard about adopting special needs children. So I thought that'd be nice, we could adopt a Downs baby, that would be okay, I wouldn't mind bringing up a Downs child or some child with medical issues like that. So we looked at this Downs baby in the little albums they had of all the children who were available. but. We found, as we were doing the course, that the couple who had actually were fostering this baby wanted to adopt her. So, of course, she would have gone to them. So we started broadening, thinking more laterally, and uh, we decided that maybe we would adopt an older child. And we looked at this boy who was seven and a half, and they said, well, he's older than your children. You shouldn't really displace their position in the family. 
we thought, well, this seems the right one for us. Because they're older, they then show the child the profiles of the particular families and they choose the one that they think they'd like to live in. The reason for that is so that later on you can't say, well, I didn't want to go to you. Mm. You chose me, I didn't choose you. It's a two-way choosing. Mm. So we prayed that if it was right for us to get this child whose name was Ian, that we would be chosen. He just happened to be being fostered with a Christian couple and um, we think they may have guided his choice a little bit and uh, we were chosen. And so he came in as our oldest child, our last child. So our first child is our middle child. It's a very strange family. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when he first came to us, it was really difficult because um, mothers let you down. His, he had been adopted as a baby, so his birth mother had given him up. His adoptive mother, his first adoptive mother, had died when he was three. The father had subsequently remarried, and the new mother didn't want Ian. And he was being fostered by a lady who he loved, and he thought that she might adopt him, but they had no intention mm. of adopting. They really were only in for fostering, but he didn't understand that. So when he came to us, I was another mother. Mm. <laughs> And when was I going to go or reject him or do something like that? So there were a lot of difficulties. He got on quite well with Terry. I don't think he'd ever had a strong male in his life before, so that was good. Mm. But it wasn't easy. Mm. In his teen years, he got into a lot of trouble. Uh, he left school at year 10 and um, he got an apprenticeship as a bricklayer. He lost that through getting into drugs on the building site and eventually he went to stay with a mate down in Tasmania. The mate had become a Christian and one day Ian rang us up to say that he had given his life to the Lord and uh, that was quite amazing. He's now um, married, they've got four children I'm babysitting them this afternoon. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> so God is amazing. Yes. And I'm sure such an answer to many prayers that you have prayed. Yes, very much kids. so. Yeah. Yes. Do, do any of your children live at home still? Yes. Um, our youngest, Sarah, lives yeah. at home. She's got special needs and special mm -hmm. challenges. She does have... Um, mental illness and that's been quite a significant challenge for her and for us. It didn't manifest itself till she was about 25 mm. but then it came on with a vengeance. Mm. That must be tough. It is. Yeah. It's very tough. I, it first happened um, 2005. My husband and I had been down in Tasmania we were walking the overland track, which we wanted to do for a long time. As we were down there, like we didn't have mobile phones in those days, but and every time we arrived at some place, we were told, your daughter rang. And we thought, what's going on? And we knew something was going on back at home. When we arrived home, we could barely get in the front door. 
every book was out of every bookshelf, every CD was out of its cases, all the saucepans were out of the kitchen cupboards, um, and it was obvious that there were problems, and Sarah thought she was tidying up for us to come home, but it was obvious that she needed professional help, and it took a long time to get appropriate help, and to get a diagnosis, and to start her on the proper medication and the proper sorts of treatment that she needed. Mm. So it's an ongoing, it is, it, ongoing. It, it is an ongoing thing. Yeah. Sometimes when you're retired you think you're going to have this life, you know, the empty nest and you can just pack up and go away whenever you like. We haven't had that mm. and I don't think we ever will. Mm. But that is, that's why I know it's good to know that Sarah is meant to be in our family and she's God's precious gift to us. Mm. And he cares about her far more deeply than we do and we care pretty deeply. Mm. Your involvement with CWCI, um, how did that start and when did that happen? Well... Way back in the 1960s, shortly after I'd become a Christian, I used to love singing and playing the guitar. And somebody asked me if I would sing at a CWCI function, which I did, and then I got asked to sing at a couple more. So I became involved in CWCI that way. Then when we moved to Tumut, we used to go across to Wagga, which was our nearest big town, to the CWCI meetings when they had them there because the church we went to, again, wasn't one that really fed its people. We weren't getting a lot of teaching. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we went across to Wagga to that and I became involved there just by going and attending. And then when we moved to Queensland, I found that there was a CWCI convention in October so a group of us used to go up most Octobers to that weekend for the CWCI convention. And I gradually became more and more involved in that. First yeah. of all through music and then being asked onto the committee mm -hmm. and so on. And now you're quite involved, I know. You've, um, you help coordinate the speakers for this region and yes. you give talks yourself and you're in a KYB group. Um, yes. How long have you been in a KYB group? Oh, KYB is Know Your Bible. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I've been a KYB study leader for about 24 years. I was always interested in KYB because I like the method where you actually have to answer questions throughout the week, yep. read the passage beforehand and not just come unprepared. And it's quite strict, isn't it? I've actually never been in a KYB group, but I have friends obviously who are and everyone in the group really agrees that they are going to try their hardest to do all the daily preparation, is that right? Yes, that's right. Sometimes it happens that somebody can't prepare. We're not as strict as some groups where you can't open your mouth if you haven't done your homework. Right. But we do like people to do it because it's for their benefit. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I have heard about, well, I, I've, I guess I've read the books, it seems like there's quite a lot of comprehension questions as well as then the thinking questions that happen in the group time more mm. do you ever get sort of tired of the comprehension questions or do you just this is god's word i just want to 
answer every question about it and know as much as I can. Well, there are some questions that you do struggle with a little bit. Sometimes yeah. they ask for personal experiences about that may parallel a particular situation. You think, oh, I don't think I've got one. <laughs> but I must admit, as the leader, I always try to write something, yeah. even if it's a bit of a stretch. But there are some questions which are just straight comprehension of the passage, yeah. which is good. Yeah. And um, I think it makes for discussion. And it also helps build up the group dynamics because if different people share different experiences yeah. in those questions which may ask about your personal um, experiences, mm -hmm. then you're learning to know each other better and you know you can care for each other better and, and things make more sense. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. And so what else do you love about CWCI? Well... I guess the thing that I really enjoy doing is going on what we call safaris, mm -hmm. which are speaking tours to country areas. Mm -hmm. Now here in Queensland we're very fortunate because we own our own safari vehicle, so those ones we go by car, but when we go further afield we go by little plane, four-seater Cessna, wow. and that's fantastic because yeah. it combines the love of sharing Jesus with women and flying. I love that, both of those things. Oh, I love Jesus best, but flying's really great as well. Yeah. yeah. Some people think, oh, I could never do that. So obviously that's not their ministry, but it's something I enjoy. Yeah, that, and that is quite exciting, isn't it? So you're landing on little airstrips sometimes? Mostly. Uh, sometimes you fly into properties, so yep. there's you know, only a sort of a, a dirt strip. Sometimes you fly to little places, say like Mataburra or Stamford yeah. or places like that, and there's not much of an airstrip, and you get met by somebody, a contact in the town, and taken into town. And yeah. so, what's the team? There's a speaker, just one speaker, or no, one speaker, yeah. a leader, yep. and the pilot. If you're going yep. by um, plane, most of the places where you go they just welcome us and then hand over to us. They get the morning tea. You eat everywhere you go. You've got to pace yourself. But they just get the morning tea or afternoon tea or dinner. it's really good food too. Oh, it's wonderful country <laughs> hospitality, I tell you. Yeah, so the leader leads the meeting and may share something. They do a promotion about CWCI. They may give a short testimony. And the other thing we do is we take a bookstore with us. Obviously, we can't take a huge number of books when we fly because of the weight, mm -hmm. but we would rather take fewer clothes and more books. Yep. And as you're in a different place every day, it often doesn't matter. You only need two outfits. <laughs> right. One on, one off. <laughs> and I bet it's just so appreciated. It is. some of them, even more remote places. That's right. I mean, you can buy books online now, yep. but seeing a book, feeling it, flipping through the pages mm. is totally different from looking at a book online and seeing the cover and reading the writer. Mm. And so that's an important ministry, but just being with people and encouraging them. And as a speaker, I give a message at every place, which I seek to be Bible teaching and encouragement. But, you know, a lot of the ministry takes place where we're billeted and because you're an outsider, they will often share things with you that they can't share um, in their local congregation because everybody knows everybody's business. 
and so at times you might sit down and have a really long DNM, deep and meaningful with somebody mm. and pray with people. Some of them don't have any pastors in their towns. Mm. All the churches, plenty of churches, but no ministers there. And that's a very sad situation. We just seek to bring some of the teaching and encouragement and hope to those people and to those towns. And one lady made a comment that touched us deeply. She said, CWCI safaris are the only support we ever receive. I mean, here in Brisbane, we could go to a conference every second week if mm. we wanted to. Sometimes it feels like that. Yes, yeah. it does. But they've got nothing. Mm. Another time, went to Camerwheel on the border of uh, the Northern Territory in Queensland. I have a funny story about Camerwheel, maybe not for the podcast, but it was, um, it was the end of a long day of driving with our four young children on our lovely big drive around half of Australia trip and we got to Camerwheel and I think I was just getting a bit tired and crusty and it was the middle of the day and we got out and everything was hot and the swing was just and there was just dry branches rolling down and I was just saying to Dave I could never live in Camerwheel and he was feeling a bit contrary and said oh I don't think it'd be that bad so we have this long-running joke about living in Camerwheel but tell me something good about Camerwheel. We were expecting that we would go to the little AIM, the Aboriginal Inland Mission Church, where there was about three ladies used yep. to go, plus the missioners who were there. But instead, about 35 women turned up and a number of children and dogs and hangers-on. And I thought, wow, this is great. What we didn't realise, that the big draw card was the turkey and tail. Turkey is bush turkey, which they were cooking around the back, yeah. And tail is kangaroo tail, which was cooking over an open fire as I was speaking in front of me. I had no idea what I was going to say. That is one of the few times where I was totally unprepared. And I just said, Lord, you will have to put the words in my mouth because the talk that I have prepared for this place is obviously not relevant. Most of these people have never darkened the door of a church. Mm and they need to hear the gospel mm. and uh, God helped me with that. Uh, it was very interesting wow. and it is very interesting eating kangaroo tail, it's very chewy. So that, yeah, wow, a lot of very interesting experiences. Yes. <laughs> that one must be memorable. It was. Okay, we've transformed the way I think about wheel. that's a good thing. <laughs> so many benefits to parachurch ministries I, I mean obviously you became a christian through one the teen ranch ministry right, and your husband yes. worked with sufm and you're very involved in cwci and it seems like they have a particular benefit in encouraging and um, feeding people who wouldn't otherwise benefit from that at their local mm. church or you know just geographically perhaps do you see what, what are some other advantages that you see well one of the things i think and i think of beach mission and camps particularly is that you get to do things and try things and you're forced into situations that normally you may not ever get a chance to do in church. Mm. At Beach Mission, you're on giving the children's talk. And, I mean, how often do people get asked to do that in church? Yeah. And at camps, you're giving the devotion tonight, you're teaching the memory verse, 
you're doing this, you're leading the singing. And so you, it begins to show what gifts and talents that God has given to you and you can hone those and develop them and then you can come back to your church and it's a positive for your church because you do have those skills mm. that you may not otherwise have honed mm. um, particularly. And you might find out too the things you can't do. Mm, I mean, that's the other yeah. possibility, isn't it? Yeah. You might think, well, I know that I can't give a talk or I know that you know leading singing is not my thing or whatever it might be. Mm. So, um, yeah, I find mm. that there are a lot of positives. Mm. And I think if you have the right balance... Mm. You know, you don't want to be giving all your time to the parachurch organisation and just turning up on Sunday and then going home. I'm quite involved in our local church. I'm the pre-coordinator, which takes a lot of time. Mm. I also play for our early service, which is 7am. And uh, That's the very early service. <laughs> yes, well, I arrive at church at about 10 past 6 every Sunday because I set it up for... The service I it do must all be the sound. hard in winter. It's hard in winter. It's great Summer's in summer. Great. Yeah, it's a beautiful time of day. <laughs> winter, it's very dark, and you've got to turn all the lights on, and you know, oh, wow. take the security off, and all that sort of thing. So, I remember one of the other things you were saying before about um, parachurch ministries is the opportunity. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a benefit and a challenge, but the opportunity to be with people of other denominations. Mm. Or, I mean, what are some of your experiences? Well, I think it's it's good because you all focus on Jesus mm. and on the gospel message and not on your differences. Mm. I know I, I've seen people who've sat in the one denominational pew all their lives and their views can be very narrow and they don't realise that it might be other people who belong to Jesus who aren't of the same denomination as they are. Mm. But of course, when you meet people who are, you realise, yeah. (laughs) And sometimes it's the opposite. I mean, I was speaking at a church just on Tuesday this week, and I think they were very surprised that I, as an Anglican, shared the same gospel. I I don't think they thought that I could preach the same sort of gospel as they believed in. Mm. And I think that was a bit of an eye-opener to some of them. Mm. When you were talking about, you were talking about the women on the properties and how CWCI is pretty much one of the only encouragements and and inputs they get and often don't have pastors. In CWCI, is there ever a bit of a tension where it feels like the women are growing so much and having time to learn and grow, but the men don't have that opportunity or that similar... Yes, there, there is sometimes, yeah. I think. And occasionally, when you go on safari, if it's an evening meeting, the men might drive their wives into the meeting yeah. and just happen to be sitting at the back. And um, some people have a problem with that. I find that some of the men are just hungry for the gospel too. Mm. They really are. Mm. And there's quite often... A lot of men talk about their wives going off to Know Your Bible, KYB. And so now we have a branch of KYB, which is called KYB2, the other option. Mm -hmm. And men can join those groups. And there's KYB4M, which is mixed or men's groups. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly under the umbrella of CWCI, Mm -hmm. but they do use the same books 
as we would use in our KYB groups. Well, look, we'll have to leave it there because you have to go off and babysit your grandchildren. But thank you so much for your time here on The Lydia Project.